morning. It's really good to see you. It's great to see Andrew and Ruth again. Thanks for sharing with us. When Ruth was talking about the vacant look on teenagers, I know what you were all thinking. You were all thinking, hey, most of us have that look every Sunday morning. Okay, So if you have a vacant look for the rest of what I say, that's okay. I can cope with that. Uh, I'd like to introduce you to the low-card exchange principle. Has anyone heard of it? One or two people, right? Dr. Edmund Lucard was a pioneer of forensic science. He died in 1966. He was known as the Sherlock Holmes of France. And he formulated this basic principle of forensic science, that every contact leaves a trace, which became known as the Lucard exchange principle. And whenever he was explaining this, here's what he said. Whatever, wherever he steps... Whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, will serve as a silent witness against him. And some of you are probably making the connections with the BBC drama series Silent Witness, originally starring Amanda Burton. But I want to use this principle to introduce a new teaching series. Because for the next couple of months on Sunday mornings, we're going to journey through Mark's Gospel, and we're going to attempt to retrace the steps of Jesus, at least as recorded by Mark, the author. We're going to look at what Jesus touches. We're going to look at who Jesus touches. We're going to reflect on what Jesus left behind, his words, his teaching, his influence, his challenge, his example, all of which provide a witness, although hopefully more than a silent witness, against him. Or maybe that should be for him. So if you do have a Bible, can I encourage you to have it open at Mark chapter 1. Thanks to Brian for reading it. I only pounced on Brian during the the offering and said, Brian, would you read that? So uh, thank you, Brian. (laughs) Really appreciate it. I was just scared of reading 46 verses all at once. Uh, And it's page 1002 in the Pew Bibles. Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. But one of its main features is the pace at which it moves. It moves at a breathtaking, breathless pace, a bit like a thriller. Every handful of verses, there's a change in setting. So in Luke, or in in chapter 1 alone, you find Jesus in the wilderness, then he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, then he's in the synagogue teaching, then he's at someone's house, next he's back into a deserted place, and finally he embarks on a preaching tour which takes him right throughout Galilee. And in addition, new characters keep entering and exiting the story. So again, in chapter 1 alone, we meet John the Baptist, God the Father, God the Spirit, Satan, angels, Simon, Andrew, James, John, different one than the Baptist, a man with an unclean spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, a whole crowd of sick and possessed people, and then finally a leper. Numerous incidents to consider, countless people to meet, but the key figure, the central focus is Jesus. In the midst of all the activity... And all the conversations and all the shifting, changing scenes stands Jesus. And clearly what Mark wants us to know is as much about him as possible in as quickly as possible. There are 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel. There are 70 incidents, 70 different situations right throughout this gospel, and Jesus is at the heart of every one of them. Mark refers to lots of events, lots of moments But he doesn't go into a huge amount of detail compared to the other gospel writers. So, for example, Matthew and Luke, who also record the temptation of Jesus, give us quite a lot of detail. But whenever you come to Mark, all Mark says is three things. 
Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. There were wild animals with him. Angels attended to him. Right, let's move on. Two verses, that's all you're getting. And Mark might be the shortest gospel, but he covers more territory. He deals and refers to more subjects. And there's a very definite sense as you read Mark's gospel, and even as Brian read it this morning, there was a sense that what Mark is doing is here. Here's the latest incident, hot off the press, but I've no time to dwell on it, so let's move on to the next one. And as I thought about how I might approach this series and how I might approach this gospel, I've decided to do something slightly different. I'm not sure how wise this is going to be. Generally, whenever you come to a text like Mark's gospel, you often home in on a couple of key phrases, key moments, key characters, and you unpack those in quite a lot of detail. You don't tend to rush anything whenever you come to the text because there's often so much to glean from it. And therefore, what we could do is we could spend each Sunday just looking at one incident. And what that would mean is that would give us the potential to go for a full year and then some just looking at Mark's gospel. So that for 52 plus weeks, we could just look at a different incident from Mark's gospel. And there may come a point in time during my ministry, however short that might be, uh, <laughs> after this morning, uh, that we may take a whole year just looking at one book in Sunday mornings. But here's what I want to do, or attempt to do. I'm going to propose, and this may sound crazy, to cover 70 incidents in seven weeks. Or maybe eight weeks. Possibly nine. But no more than ten. But here's why I want to do it. Not to be different necessarily. And not for novelty value. But I want to attempt to capture something of Mark's desire. To provide us with as much information and truth and reflections about Jesus in as short a space of time as is possible. Or at least in as short a space of time as we have together here just once a week whenever I stand up for 20-25 minutes or whatever it is. And in some ways what I want to do is I want our heads to be buzzing with details and thoughts about Jesus. And picking up on the low card exchange principle. I am hoping that after 70 incidents in 70 weeks there will be a lot more than a trace of Jesus left with us and carried with us. That's my aim. But there's also an additional subtext. Because I hope that as we walk out of here each week and we re-enter our worlds, our homes, our workplaces, our colleges, our universities, our schools, our neighbourhoods, our social settings and context, I also hope that those who come into contact with us will be left with more than a trace of Jesus. Two more comments by way of introduction. One, it's not going to be over seven straight Sundays. Actually, I didn't mean to say that, Alice. Next Sunday is Tear Fund Sunday, and so actually there'll be somebody along from Tear Fund to speak. And then the other thing I want to say is that we're not always going to deal with the incidents in the order they appear. Okay, let's engage with the text. As I say, if you have a Bible open, really helpful. And we're going to fly through this, and we will be done by 22, quarter two, okay? So we're going to engage it. But more importantly, what I want to do is let us encounter Jesus. So right at verse 1, as, as uh, 
Brian read for us. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a very different starting point from the other gospel writers. There's no family trees like Matthew gives us. There's no birth narrative like Luke gives us. There's no explanation about the pre-existence of Jesus like John gives us. There's no preliminaries. It's just straight in for Mark. It's the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. The beginning. In other words, something new has happened. Something new is happening. But if you look at verses 2 and 3, Mark is quick to establish a link between this new beginning and the past. And so he quotes two Old Testament prophets. Because it's really vital for his readers to know, critical to realize, that the promises that God made years ago via people like Isaiah and Malachi are now being fulfilled in this new beginning. Or to put it more accurately, those promises are now being fulfilled in who has appeared on the scene. Because we go back to verse 1, Mark actually says it's the beginning of the gospel. It is good news, but it doesn't just stop there. It's good news, it's the gospel, and it's about a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So we're one line into chapter 1, and immediately the focus for Mark is clear. This is all about Jesus. And honestly, folks, my prayer for this time on Sunday mornings for the next number of weeks is that the focus would just be about Jesus. I'm probably not going to share anything new. But what I just want is that as we leave church every Sunday morning for the next number of weeks, that our heads will just be buzzing with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But notice the title that Mark gives to him right at the outset. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, meaning Savior, meaning Rescuer. Christ, meaning Messiah, the Anointed. The one that the Jewish nation has been waiting for for years. And to end Mark's descriptive introduction, he's also the Son of God. He's also divine. So this beginning, this gospel, this person is evidently significantly different from anyone who's come before. There's been 400 years of silence. 400 plus years before that, God sent a prophet, then he sent another prophet, then he sent another prophet. Now, he sends Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Never before has anybody been introduced like this. And the first character to appear on the set is probably best described as alternative, although unusual and slightly weird are also appropriate adjectives. Because the first thing about him, but the key thing about John the Baptist, apart from anything else we may believe about him, is that he is obsessed by his own insignificance. His calling, his role in the unfolding drama was to point people in the direction of this other person who, according to him, was more powerful than he was. That's what it says in verse 7. Plus, he's far more important than him. In fact, as far as John is concerned, he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. And then the final thing that this rather unusual guy says about this someone else is that he will baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Up to now, John's been baptizing people with water, but this new dimension is radically different, and it's only possible because evidently the person who's coming to do it is radically different. And so the picture of Jesus that Mark is painting for us is impressive. We're only eight verses in, but he's Savior, he's Messiah, he's divine, he's powerful, he's worthy, he's a baptizer. And hopefully already our minds are beginning to just stretch that little. But now in verse 9, it's time to encounter him. And the first thing that we observe him doing is being baptized by John. Now initially that idea disturbed John. 
Mark doesn't really record that, but Matthew certainly describes John's unease at this moment. Because why would someone who is Jesus Christ, Saviour, Messiah, the Son of God, Divine, why does someone like that need to be baptised? Good question, and there are many, many deep issues to consider there. But in our journey with Jesus through Mark's Gospel, and as we retrace his steps, and as we watch what he does, and as we listen to what he says, the constant issue I want us to be thinking, at, or thinking about and looking at is, how does all this relate to me? Like as I, as we make contact with Jesus in these 70 incidents, what am I left with? What trace of his life, his words, his actions, his example, what am I left to consider? And here, at a remote river, in the middle of somewhere, Jesus engages in an act of public obedience and profound humility. And at one level, that is a challenge that each of us face in choosing to follow Jesus, if that is a choice we have made, or if that is a choice we're thinking of making. Whether or not we are going to pursue his example, and we're going to engage in this obedient and humbling act. And maybe for some people here this morning, that's the thing about this morning. That's the example of Jesus that we need to consider. So let's add that to his growing profile. Saviour, Messiah, divine, powerful, worthy, baptizer, baptized. And what, what happened next in the story must have been stunning to witness and experience. Because in one breathtaking moment, Jesus is anointed and he's affirmed. And as John raises Jesus up out of the water, the heavens tear open, the Holy Spirit descends, Mark says, like a dove, and then God the Father speaks in what appears to have been an audible voice, and he says this, you are my son, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. And you know, if there ever were two things that we needed to know, two things that we need to experience and need to embrace, it's these It's God's anointing and God's affirmation. This event, this moment is generally perceived as the beginning of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. In his anointing by God the Spirit, Jesus is equipped for a life of service. And the life of service that lay ahead of him. And if such an anointing was necessary, and again, why? But if such an anointing was necessary for the Son of God, then how much more do every single one of us need God's anointing as we seek to serve and minister in his name? And I know there can be quite a bit of misunderstanding about the Spirit's rule in our lives, but from the time of Pentecost, Acts 2, we believe that the Holy Spirit has been given to all who repent and believe and follow Christ. But there are times whenever we do need to be sure of God's anointing for specific tasks and callings. Shortly after this event, Jesus was able to stand up in a synagogue and say, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And as we stand up to speak God's word, As we share our faith in the workplace tomorrow, as we go home to be a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, whatever, as we offer to care, to give, to lead a SISM team, to lead clay, to teach a junior church class, to facilitate a fellowship group, to go and lead a church in Spain, as we seek to serve and minister in the name of Jesus, we need God's anointing. 
And secondly, we need to hear, and maybe we need to hear afresh this morning, God's affirmations. You know, many kids are growing up in our world who've never had a father say to them, either in words or in looks or in hugs, you're my child and I just love you. Never mind, you're my child, I love you and I'm well pleased with you. And in the Western world, even those fathers who think this in their hearts are often too tongue-tied or embarrassed to tell their children how delighted they are with them. And sadly, many opt for destructive alternatives, the angry voice-offs, the bitter rejection, the judgmental comments. And someone has said, and I think helpfully, that the whole Christian gospel could be summed up at this point. That whenever the living God looks at us, at every baptized and believing Christian, he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day, mainly because he sees us not as we are in ourselves, but as we are in Jesus Christ. And that may be hard for some of us to get our heads around this morning, especially if you've never had the kind of support that you've longed for from earthly parents. But this is true nonetheless, that God looks at those of us who belong to him and says, you, and you can add your name to this, you are my dear, dear child. I love you and I am well pleased with you. And as I say, some of us struggle with that. And so maybe this morning, what you need to hear above everything else as we profile Jesus is you need to hear God's affirmation. And if you want to know how how can this be true, if you're maybe searching, you want to know how to, well then the rest of Mark's gospel, the rest of the story explains it as we go through it. So Jesus is anointed and he is affirmed. Let's move on to the next incident because rather bizarrely having anointed him, The Spirit then sends Jesus into a barren environment for 40 days where he allows, or where Satan is allowed to tempt him. Jesus is tempted. A time of blessing, a time of profound joy whenever he's heard words of affirmation is closely followed by a difficult experience of temptation and trial. And I don't know about you, but that just sounds so familiar to me. One moment you sense the nearness And the peace of God, and the next, you're confronted by the presence, the attraction, and the reality of evil. Do you know the contrasting experiences of life should never come as a surprise to us? And in the midst of what Andrew and Ruth are going through, blessing, church doubling, five people baptized, great things happening, people coming, willing to do lots of things. But in the midst of that all, there are challenges. Because there's an enemy who wants to wreck what is going on. And whenever we are in a place where we sense the nearness and the presence of God, you can be sure that probably the very next moment you're going to sense the reality and presence of evil. Mark, as I've already said, doesn't give us much information about this incident. But although he moves on quickly, he does give us some comfort in the discovery that, okay, wild beasts are there and wild animals are there, they're present with Jesus, but so were ministering angels. So no matter what you are going through, you are never alone. And Mark then makes a quick reference to to John's imprisonment. He'll come back to that. But then quickly he's back to Jesus in verse 14 and 15 as Mark relocates him in Galilee and explains why he's here. Jesus is here to proclaim the good news of God and to lay down a challenge, another part of his profile. 
The kingdom of God is near, says Jesus. These are the first recorded words of Jesus from Mark's perspective. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, God is on the move. You know, kingdom talk was part of popular thinking at this time. But what people had in mind, what they envisaged, what they were expecting was not exactly what they got. Many were anticipating a physical kingdom that would sort out and overthrow and do away with the current setup. But the kingdom of God that Jesus spoke about had far more to do with the spiritual rule and reign of Jesus within every human heart. And there were two access points to this kingdom. You repent, you believe the good news. Echoes of John the Baptist. Repentance involves this complete turnaround. A change of life direction from following your own path, your own agenda, your own ways, your own purposes to following God's. And a key aspect of repentance is the confession of sins. Not particular popular teaching in the first century, not particular popular teaching in the 21st century. Reinvent yourself is a great idea today. We live in a world that is constantly saying, look, change your lifestyle, change your look, change your house, change your wardrobe, change your body shape, change your structure. Those are all very fashionable concepts, but it's always about you. It's always about how you can better yourself, whereas repentance is always about God. And it recognizes that you can't change the real you without God's intervention, without God's forgiveness. Repentance is a cry from the heart. It's not a cry for attention. And coupled with repentance is the need for belief in the good news, which as we've already indicated is good news about a person. In about eight chapters time, in about 30 incidents time, Jesus will provocatively ask his disciples, listen, who do people say I am? And by the way, who do you think I am? Because you see, how every single person answers that question will determine so much about our lives. Who do we believe Jesus to be? All these things and more that we're going to uncover. There is possibly nothing as important or more important than what you believe about Jesus. It's why a series like this, a journey of discovery, is so critical, is so valuable. Jesus challenged. Jesus is a challenger. Jesus will not leave you as you are. Jesus wants to change you, transform you, make you into something different and new. He comes to challenge. Need to keep moving because now Jesus begins to do something that continues to this very day. He calls disciples. He's a disciple seeker. The first four are Simon, Peter, James, Andrew, and John, and the stakes couldn't be higher. He asked them, listen, I want you to lay down your lives. The choice you're facing here will impact your livelihoods. It will impact your family life, your present, your future, your entire worlds. And that is exactly the call to discipleship today. It's still radical. It's still revolutionary, despite how much we have watered it down. And we have watered it down. Let's be honest about this. We have watered discipleship down. We've made it about church attendance. We've made it about going to meetings. We've made it about ticking so many different boxes rather than following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is still seeking disciples, those who walk as he walked. But one of the key things I want to mention is what he says there, because he says, I will make you. Jesus isn't just a disciple seeker. He's a disciple maker. The choice to follow Jesus is your choice, but he doesn't invite you from a distance. He doesn't abandon you to your own devices. He will make you. He will enable you. He will empower you as you surrender your life to him. This is all about a journey with Jesus. This is not about launching out on your own. 
And sometimes we lose sight of this. We beat ourselves up as Christians because we keep trying to do it in our own strength. We keep trying to get our act together, sort our lives out, whenever in reality all we've got to do is allow Jesus to make us who he wants us to be. And most of the time, I don't feel like being a Christian. I don't feel very... I doubt my ability. I'm far too aware of my own inability. And so now is the time for a cliche. It's been a while since I've said one of these. For all who seek to follow Christ, it's not about our ability or our inability, but it's about our availability. Let go and let God. Stop trying to do it on our own strength. God is, is a, Jesus is a disciple seeker, but he's also a disciple maker. He will make you. It's not about what you do. And in the next incident, Jesus is preaching his first sermon. He's still with me, five minutes left. In the next incident, Jesus is preaching his first sermon. And not surprisingly, people are amazed at his teaching. So he's a teacher. He teaches with authority. But his teaching was altogether different. The contrast between what he said and what others shared was apparent. And as we work our way through this gospel, time and time again, we are faced with the extraordinary teaching of Jesus. The question we all have to face is, will we accept its authority? Will I accept the authority of the teaching of Jesus in my life? I can admire it. I can respect it. As many people in our society today do. The teaching of Jesus makes so much sense. It's great to admire. It's great to respect Jesus. But what Jesus is looking for are people who will follow his teaching. Who will accept the authority of his teaching and then walk it out and live it out. Now during this service, there's a public response to Jesus' teaching, which tends to be what lots of preachers hope for. But they don't probably want this kind of response. Because what happens is a man who is possessed by an evil and unclean spirit speaks up. And the reason he speaks up is mainly because this evil spirit recognizes who Jesus is. And so that's why, and Brian emphasized it, that's why he describes Jesus as the Holy One of God, another aspect of the profile of Jesus. And Jesus deals with the spirit in no uncertain terms, which seeks to reinforce his authorities. He's he's authoritative. Evil exists, but good triumphs. And then from the public context of a church service to the private setting of a home. And what you discover is Jesus still ministering to people. You see, for Jesus, it didn't matter if the spotlight was on and crowds were watching or whether he was behind closed doors with only a handful of people. And that is the challenge we face because, you see, Jesus was consistent. There was no separation of public and private faith. Who Jesus was, what Jesus was, what he was about, was always reflected not only in his public ministry but in his private life. And this is one of the biggest challenges we face today. That we are consistent. That we don't just come and turn it on at the appropriate moments. And you hear so many sad stories, particularly in church circles, about people who could come to church and who could seem so whatever, and yet behind closed doors with their families, they just were a completely different animal almost spoke differently, acted differently, behaved differently. Great when the spotlight was on, great when people were watching, but get them behind the closed doors and just something different appeared. Jesus was consistent, and those of us who want to follow Jesus must reflect this. And so then Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. He's a healer. 
Jesus just about had time for tea and then after sunset the whole town shows up. I have no idea what that must have looked like. It just says the whole town showed up and they just brought all the sick and all the demon possessed and they just said, right, Jesus, please. And it says Jesus healed many of them and delivered many of them, which must have been some sight. And who knows what time Jesus fell into bed. But Mark tells us, and this very early the next morning, while it was dark, Jesus gets up, he leaves the house, and he goes off to a solitary place to pray. And I'm going to say more about this tonight, because tonight we're starting our Lent Sunday evening series, looking at holy habits, looking at spiritual disciplines, looking at the rhythm of Jesus' life, a rhythm of withdrawal and engagement, work and retreat. Do you know sometimes, and I'm going to pick up on this tonight, sometimes you know we think, hey, do you know I'm really busy, really, really busy. I don't have time for solitary refinement. I don't have time for spending time alone with God. I don't have time to get up very early in the morning. I've had a hectic day. Hey, listen, the whole town showed up at Jesus' door the night before. And he had to stand there and he had to heal and he had to deliver. And I don't know, as I say, what time he fell into bed, but he gets up very early the next morning, goes off to a solitary place. Jesus was a contemplative. And we're going to explore that tonight and explain why this is so important. Jesus' life was packed with activity, but Jesus knew the importance of being alone with his Father. And if the Son of God needed this, and again, why did the Son of God need to be baptized? Why did the Son of God need to be anointed? Why did the Son of God need to be affirmed? Why does the Son of God need to get up early and pray? If he needed to do it, how much do I need to do it? It's back to what Ruth was saying. Hey, I don't feel like doing it. I don't feel like reading and praying most of the time. But I know how important it is. Jesus seemed to know how important it was. Final incident. Incident number nine. 61 to go. Jesus then heals a leper. But note why he did it. Verse 41, it says, filled with compassion. Final part of the profile for this morning. Jesus was filled with compassion. Only Mark uses the word compassion when he's retelling this story. And here we discover a key truth about the journey with Jesus. That whenever Jesus is confronted by the outcast, by the marginalized, by the rejected, by the people that nobody else really wanted to spend time with the heart of Jesus broke and his stomach churned and his hand often reached out to touch and how much do we need a trace of the compassion of Jesus and Jesus then tells this healed leper to say nothing go and be a silent witness but he can't do it and so we conclude chapter 1 ends And already we have an explicit profile of the central figure in Mark's gospel. This is Jesus. In the space of one chapter of the Bible's 1189 of them, Mark gives us a vivid description of the person who's at the heart of Christianity. The person at the heart of our Christian faith. Jesus was all of these. And all I've wanted to do this morning and all I want to do during this series in 25 minutes each Sunday morning is draw your attention to Jesus. And I guarantee I've said nothing new this morning but as we journey through this gospel I hope our contact with Jesus will keep leaving a trace of his greatness his brilliance and his importance because do you know something? He must increase and I must decrease.